welcome to Lightcast with Stephanie Gast, a podcast where we cast light on mental health, sexuality, and other human experiences we keep in the dark. I'm your host, Stephanie, registered associate marriage and family therapist on the road to licensure. Disclaimer, this podcast, including any references and resources, are for informational purposes only. Anything said should not be taken as a replacement for medical, clinical, professional advice, diagnosis, or medical intervention. My podcast may cover sensitive topics, including but not limited to abuse, suicide, violence, mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol. Your discretion is advised. The word ego can often have a negative connotation to it. But the truth is, is that we all have an ego, and it's actually important to have one for a healthy level of self-esteem. The term narcissism or narcissist is commonly used, yet many don't know where it truly stems from. In this part one of two episode on narcissism, we will learn about the ego and its defense mechanisms. We'll take a look at the spectrum of narcissism from healthy ego all the way to narcissistic personality disorder will expose the origin of narcissistic traits and reveal a narcissist's worst fears. Join me as we uncover what hides behind a narcissistic mask. We're going to begin by briefly talking about the ego and some of its common defense mechanisms that we all use from time to time, either unconsciously or consciously. But we all have an ego, like I mentioned in the introduction. And the ego does serve a purpose. It serves to protect us when we feel vulnerable. And it's it's normal to have ego defenses that that pop up from time to time because it's rooted in survival. It's rooted in protecting us when we're perceived to be vulnerable. So when there is some kind of painful truth or reality that is too much for us to bear, our ego serves as this kind of defense mechanism and kind of jumps in to save us when this painful truth or reality is too much. Uh, it's kind of like this armor, you know, this armor that that walls up and protects your uh, your emotions or your sanity. And the only problem is that sometimes the ego can can start to wreak havoc a little bit and kind of run run rampant and always kind of in the forefront if if that happens it can be really from this place of fear or trauma but this armor that we wall up that our ego may wall up for us is almost like unwilling to let go because it it thinks it's serving us a purpose by protecting us, but it may be functioning from an outdated or dysfunctional programming from our early upbringing or uh, traumas that we've endured in our life. So at one point, you know, if a trauma or uh, something really fearful happened in the early upbringing, that ego will defend you. And I'm going to go into some of the common defense mechanisms in a second, but it does this. The ego will defend you when you're going through something like that. And it might've really actually helped at the time in early upbringing or something that was really traumatic. Our ego jumps in and armors you and it may have been helpful. It may have served you at that point in time. But what happens is that sometimes we get conditioned to keep responding to things in this way, again, either unconsciously or consciously, but it ends up kind of being this uh, inner programming that just goes on repeat, um, even if that threat isn't really there any longer. But it was an old way that, you know, your ego could defend yourself, and it is um, an easy way to kind of slip into that if that was useful or helpful to keep you from harm in the past or to shield you from painful experiences or emotions. So our egos can be very fragile and they're kind of like these little power hungry little things. They they think sometimes that if 
you are above or the strongest or again this kind of power hungry little feel that our ego thinks that that makes us higher up therefore better therefore stronger therefore less fragile uh, less vulnerable and it wants to do that to make up for the times that we do really feel vulnerable so before we kind of jump into all of the ego defenses it's really about us as humans going easy on ourselves, um, you know, realizing that we're only human and our ego may want to jump in there and, and jump in when we've made a mistake or um, if there's a failure or there's some kind of stress or tension in a relationship. Our ego wants to jump in and try to act like it's got everything, it's got all the answers, it knows all the things. Um, but it's okay sometimes to accept that we don't. So really, our ego, it serves, it jumps in to protect us, but, but really if humans can kind of remind themselves that we're bound to make mistakes, we're very likely to mess up, and this is very normal, and that's very okay. And when we adopt that kind of relaxed attitude that allows room for those mistakes to to learn from failures there is less stress and tension when we give ourselves that permission to have that kind of laid back mindset or nature um, it's easier for us to respond to those moments when our ego may feel like it needs to defend itself because again it's normal that that will come up from time to time we're only human um, so let's get into some of the ego defenses, some of the common ones that we use. Ego defense mechanisms are these psychological strategies that help us deal with uncertainty and the ambugid, oh, I can't even say that word, ambugid, oh my gosh, I really can't say that word, when things are ambiguous, when things are ambiguous in existence. So you know, we're on this, uh, we're in this life, uh, on this planet, and there is a lot of uncertainty in this life. And that is really hard to grasp um, sometimes for our own sanity, that things are really out of our control. So our ego, that, that makes it feel very vulnerable. It feels very threatened by the fact that we don't have any control really in this life. Um, and so these psychological strategies can help us deal in times like that when it makes us feel vulnerable. So some of the common ones, let's start with making assumptions. So that's, this is one way that our ego likes to defend. It makes assumptions. An assumption is a belief that something is true based on what we think is true without proof. Right? So that's that's a little bit egotistical, right? For this ego to make assumptions and making an assumption based off something that we just think is true for just some, for some reason, and we don't really have any proof to back that assumption up. And those assumptions can be about yourself, about other people, about other certain situations in life. You know, it can sound something like, "Oh, they're treating me this way because A, B, and C." Or, oh, my bosses think I'm this. Or, I always do this because A, B, and C. And so, why it's harmful for, for our ego to use assumptions as this defense mechanism is because assumptions create a lot of unnecessary emotions and mental pain, especially if you're one of the people who assumes the worst, right? So we can make assumptions, but sometimes making assumptions goes far as um, kind of responding from like these deeper maybe judgments of ourselves that we think other people have of us. So these assumptions kind of, you know, when you're thinking that you're kind of going through this emotional mental pain of what you think might be true, even though it might not be, but our ego is trying to create a narrative there to fill in that uncertainty. And so it may serve to protect our ego in the moment, but it can be harmful because it can destroy relationships with the people that you care about if you make assumptions or 
damage the relationship you have with yourself, even um, based off the judgments that you're, you're, or the assumptions that you're making that maybe others are judging you. So making assumptions is one way our ego comes in to defend. Another way is with extreme beliefs. So a belief is a conviction that something is true, even if it, may, even if it may not be. So beliefs can be very extreme, kind of like black or white. Um, some beliefs that can that our ego likes to create uh, maybe, you know, all you know, somebody let's say like gives you um, feedback on like how you responded um, to a situation. The ego may have a belief that's so strong, like I'll never be able to speak normally, or they hate me. Um, people are always out to get me. No one will ever like me because I'm this, right? So these these extreme beliefs that that our ego will latch onto in that time can sometimes be beliefs that we've just held very unconsciously like these deep-rooted messages that we may have learned somewhere along the way from our early upbringing or childhood experiences. And these are harmful beliefs. Um, Beliefs can be blinding by nature because they can be false. Um, But we, if you believe in it with so much strong conviction, um, there is this you know, your self-worth is kind of uh, reliant on this strong belief. And that can lead to a lot of low self-esteem and kind of negatively impact you. So our ego likes to attach to those beliefs because, again, it's it's filling in the missing sentence. If you don't know why someone is acting a certain way towards you um, or responding to the way you responded, the ego might jump in with these extreme beliefs that maybe they're just so used to holding on to, these narratives that we've created from our past. That's another way. This one, uh, the next one is negative comparisons. So our ego likes to protect ourselves by negative comparisons. So let me explain this one. So a comparison is a judgment that we make when we measure two things or more Uh, or people against each other. So it's measuring two or more things or people against each other. And that's a comparison. And you can say, you know, like, oh, they're smarter than me, or my body is, you know, ugly in in comparison to theirs. And these comparisons don't just exist, you know, between ourselves and, you know, other people. But Comparisons can also happen between, you know, where we are and where we'd like to be. Um, So ourselves and these kind of ideas of what we think should be happening. So these can sound like, you know, I should be able to work harder. I should be better at socializing. And this kind of negative comparison feeds this feeling of like dissatisfaction and low self-esteem. Again, when you drive, you know, two things together to compare them, you're, you're bound to have this feeling of, you know, wanting to be better, wanting to be more perfect, more ideals. You want to excel. There's all these like big things and it's a huge yardstick, you know, to measure yourself from. And, you know, that can, it's harmful because it can breed, you know, a lot of jealousy and envy. And these are really those low emotions that just result in feeling anger and pain and frustration. And so, you know, again, so like our, our mind, our ego, it'll, it'll again, start to fill in these narratives by comparing, um, wanting to, you know, again, judge where we are in life, maybe compared to another person. But really that just, again, breeds those anger angry ridden like emotions and um, feeling dissatisfied. And when we rely so much on, you know, if, you know, comparing where I am to someone else's journey, even though there's a complete two unique separate paths, it can, you know, again, like impact relationships. It can impact connection with other people if we let those things kind of get in the way. So that's one way our ego also comes up. 
Another is obsessive desires. So when we desire something, it's desiring something that we don't have. So when we do that, you know, we're bound to feel this disconnect and feel as though, you know, somewhere deep inside something is lacking. And so, you know, I'm not to say, you know, it's not good to desire things. Of course, it's good to desire and want things out of life. But we have like an obsessive desire where we're like plagued with this sensation and, and this idea that we just don't have enough, that we are not enough. Um, you know, these kind of obsessive desires can more sound like, you know, if you're ruminating on like, oh, I want to be, you know, successful or I want to be, you know, really skinny, but I can't, or um, I want to buy, you know, a fancy house or this, and this would make my life better, but I just, I don't have that. Um, and like, I want to be, I want to be just like that person. And I wish I could have that quality. And again, it's like these these desires that is very linked to comparison, right? They're, it's kind of really similar because you're desiring maybe off of what you see that others possess or have. And this is harmful when we obsessively desire and linger on that feeling of something that we don't have because, you know, we end up comparing ourselves and may, maybe falling short or feeling like we fall short. And again, it leads back to those feelings of unhappiness and anger and envy. All these, you know, again, these are the emotions that the ego likes to sit in a lot because it's the, I want to be better. I want to be, you know, this, this kind of portrayal of what success or strength is, especially in our social day and age, you know, there is that happening. And so the ego will compare, desire these things, but all that really does is make the ego sit with feeling like I'm not enough. I need these external things to, to be enough. So another uh, ego protective mechanism that you may use as well is strict expectations. So when we expect something right? It's this like preconceived idea that we think something should happen or will happen in this way that we're expecting it to happen. But expectations are really created from this space of wanting to, you know, have and possess control over future outcomes, which as we know, like we can't control the future, but somehow when we expect something and, you know, we want something to go a certain way, there's this level of trying to like control it. And that expectation really stems from this misguided certainty. You know, it's like this misguided belief that we have control over the future, which we absolutely don't. And that's a really kind of like security seeking kind of behavior. So right? I said like our ego will jump in to protect us when life is uncertain and we don't know the answers and we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And that's really hard sometimes to mentally, emotionally grasp as we, you know, go through life. And so when we have those expectations and then get let down, right? Like it turns into anxiety or turmoil or rage, anger, disappointment, all these you know, tough emotions because we somehow thought in our expectation, we knew what was going to happen in the future and it didn't turn out that way. And then you're left with all this disappointment and all this stuff. And so our ego likes to think that we have some kind of control and kind of puts that expectation out there. And it's really trying to feel kind of secure in the uncertainty of it all. So again, reminding ourselves that we're human, we're imperfect, life is imperfect, you know, and so we don't really have any of these controls over what really will happen. Um, and it can just end up leading more to these, um, you know, sadder or more confusing feelings when we've kind of put this expectation out there and it's been let down. That's really our ego. <laughs> so Another one is lofty ideals. Ideals. 
Um, so an ideal is an imagined perfect outcome. This is kind of similar to expectations. So a perfect ideal, you know, a common one is like finding like the perfect, like one true love, which is also, you know, unrealistic as, you know, everybody has flaws, you know, everybody has something that they're going through, right? So no one, no one love is ever going to be like completely perfect anyway, because we all have flaws. We're innately flawed as humans. Um, but this, but the ideals, these ideals that we may latch on to is this, you know, it's related to perfectionism and setting up these kind of unrealistic goals that are, you know, almost always impossible to live up to entirely. Um, and so again, it, it's harmful in the sense that um, these, you know, perfect ideals, these lofty ideals that we may set up for ourselves may be hard to achieve. And if we, you know, keep going, striving for them and we feel like failures and like our lives aren't good enough and if nothing ever goes right, um, having these really high ideals that may be unrealistic to attain, I think ends up putting a lot of immense pressure on a person and create a lot of anxiety uh, that looms in their life that there's this, you know, ideal that they're just failing to achieve, even though it might be really just unrealistic in this world. Um, and so when we, when we, you know, try to, if we fail to kind of match our inner like ideal of what we want with our outer reality, that can sometimes lead to this kind of inward collapse that triggers depression or um, an existential crisis. So uh, you know, that that's another way our ego will kind of jump in and it tries to, you know, create all these perfect ideals for what we're, you know, what we can try to achieve in life. Um, and then getting really hard on yourself when you don't meet that is, is the ego, you know, kind of taking a hit. And so that why, that's why those, I, those lofty ideals can be kind of um, damaging. So uh, the next two are probably ones you've heard before, similar, um, but different. <laughs> so the first one is uh, suppression. So in this ego protection, suppression is when we, you know, suppress, <laughs> I can't use the word suppress while I'm trying to define it. Um, it's, 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 it's trying to live with this, uh, inner tension of, of having, you know, these desires and, you know, having maybe wants and needs. Um, but it conflicts somewhere with being maybe socially acceptable. And so there's this kind of conflict between having these feelings, but then feeling the need to suppress it and put it down. Um, so this is an example. Um, let's say you want to like laugh loudly and freely. Um, you're in a group of friends and something just really made you want to like do one of those really loud cackles where you're just laughing off your seat, laughing freely. But your ego jumps in for a second and it knows that other people may look at you strangely, right? You might get more stares than you want. Um, and then, so then the ego is, reads that as an unsafety maybe because of the past or just innately because it can be kind of uncomfortable when people stare at us sometimes. So the ego jumps in and it's like, oh, let me protect you. So let's suppress that. Let's suppress that authentic laughter, that authentic form of self-expression to, to be socially acceptable. So it's like suppression can be kind of a conscious decision at some points where we may, you know, right, have this desire to maybe want to laugh. We suppress it because we we don't want other people to look at us strangely. Um, and suppression, you know, can be helpful in certain situations. You know, like let's say you're a parent and you're dealing with small children who can be really demanding. Um in those departments, right, like suppressing your your anger, or your feelings in the moment to try to communicate better with your your demanding little child, right? Like that is a good use of suppression consciously because 
you're choosing to, you know, not act out of those emotions in that frustrating situation. Um, but suppression can start to get toxic when you start to do it on the regular, um, when, you know, it can actually kind of move from this conscious to unconscious process where um, it kind of starts instinctually starting to happen. Um, so again, suppression is harmful because suppression is a huge obstacle to um, living authentically and self-growth and being able to, uh, again, like be yourself and therefore love yourself. And the more you kind of suppress within yourself, the more you have to adopt, you know, a mask or this persona to kind of deal with the outer world. And when you wear this mask, you know, the, the more inauthentic you might feel to yourself and the more you start feeling disconnected from yourself. So, right, like the ego was helpful, it started to be helpful right in the beginning. It tells you, you know, like it thinks that you're feeling vulnerable and it tells you to suppress things so that, you know, you can feel safe and accepted where, wherever you are. But that ends up leading into this internal um, kind of betrayal of self self-expression and um, just being who you are and living authentically. So, so that's why suppression can, you know, can lead to some kind of harmful roadblocks for somebody to really be themselves uh, and kind of ends up just serving the opposite of trying to pr protect who you are, you know. So the one that's closely similar to suppression is repression. So repression is different uh, in one major important way that repression is more of an, it's an entirely unconscious process. So while suppression at some point you can kind of consciously choose, <clears throat> you know, oh, I don't want to laugh loudly in this situation, or I don't want to, I don't want others to look at me a certain way. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'll, you know, adjust myself, right? So suppression is conscious in some ways, but repression happens entirely unconsciously. So, you know, here's, you know, the only way I can really think of it is an example in which, you know, something traumatizing has happened to a child, something so scary, unsettling in your early upbringing that <clears throat> the psyche just repressed it immediately. It buried it deep within your psyche because, you know, of course, whatever trauma that happened isn't your fault, but the ego protects you because maybe that that painful trauma or memory was just too much for your psyche to bear. And so it represses it. It represses it. But the only problem is that that repressed content is still, you know, lying beneath. It's still in your unconscious and can come out in your life in various, sometimes destructive ways. So again, like repression is this automatic unconscious defense mechanism. Um, out of all of the ones that I've listed, all of these common ego protections, uh, this is the one that you don't have the most control over, unfortunately. All the other ones, you may have some level of awareness about how to adjust your expectations, um, you know, have, you know, adjust your ideals, don't neg negatively compare yourself, make assumptions, all these things, right? You can have kind of some control over, but Repression is different in the fact that it is really entirely just this automatic unconscious process that happens to protect you. So sometimes we don't even know we're, you know, know what it is that is being repressed, um, not really being aware of what the, you know, original kind of desires were there before being kind of squashed, you know, before they got a chance to really blossom in this life if it happened really early on. And so this repression, this kind of piece of a chapter that maybe feels kind of locked away, uh, can feel, you know, result in this feeling of kind of being out of touch with your true self and maybe alienated from people in your life or things in your life because there's, there is just this kind of level of disconnection, something that your ego has protected you from because it wanted you to feel safe and not vulnerable. So it tucked it away. So those are some of the, you know, 
more common kind of normal defense mechanisms that our ego will do to jump in to protect us because our ego is there to protect us when we feel vulnerable or threatened or unsafe. In the interest of talking about ego and its protective mechanisms, I just have to share that as I'm doing this podcast, even my ego is jumping in right now, full-fledged, trying to tell me, you know, that I'm not, you know, doing, I'm not describing this well enough, I talk too much, I, uh, you know, I, I have this expectation of, you know, how it's supposed to sound or go, and I, I have to literally remind myself that there is no, there's no way to cover this topic, you know, in a short amount of time completely the way that any of these topics that I talk about deserve. So just had to point that in there that, you know, the ego's there, we all got it, and mine's coming in right now trying to be hard on myself. So I just had to call that into the room because uh, I would be a hypocrite if I didn't bring in my own ego right now as I'm talking about ego stuff. So now we're going to move on to when the ego, you know, starts to become more of a problem. We've all got one, but when we start working more from that place of ego protection, uh, really extremely, we start starting getting more into the narcissism department. So narcissism can also have this kind of negative connotation to it, but a healthy level of narcissism is not a bad thing. So we're going to look at narcissism as a spectrum. And so on the lower end of the spectrum, we've got healthy, normal narcissism. And, you know, this would look like someone who's just got good self-esteem, healthy self, uh, self-confidence, acknowledgement of their limits. They know their own strengths and weaknesses. They have strong empathic relationships they can relate to others and, you know, they can understand that a person can make mistakes in their life, right? That is healthy, normal narcissism all the way at the low end. When we start creeping up more and more in this spectrum of narcissism, we see more narcissistic traits. So someone who has higher than normal narcissistic traits, Maybe they just kind of have this sense of entitlement when they walk into a room, kind of expectations, high expectations of how they should be treated. Maybe they just have really high self-esteem. Maybe they talk about themselves a lot. Maybe they kind of dominate conversations a lot of the time or they exaggerate some truths about themselves. You know, that's kind of getting into, okay, we've got some like higher than normal narcissism traits in here. We're kind of creeping up this person may be starting to seem like a like a narcissist in some ways and as we creep up creep up someone is probably like a lot of these narcissistic traits we're probably using that word narcissist to describe them but a narcissist is different from what i'm about to describe which so a narcissist has some of these higher than normal levels of narcissistic traits when we get all the way to the higher end of the narcissistic spectrum we see narcissistic personality disorder, what people may call NPD. So this is different from just a narcissist who may like just kind of show some of these traits, right? But someone who has narcissistic personality disorder has a disabling condition. And it's a it's shown with this this pattern of grandiosity, like extremely grandiose sense of self that's either in fantasy or in how they behave. They have this need for admiration and lack of empathy. It's, you know, inflexible and it significantly impacts this person's life, uh, maybe their occupation, their social life. It's causing distress, might even be causing problems in other people's lives. Um, bordering on even exploitative or dangerous or violent. So some symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder, I said one of them, right? It's like this grandiose sense of self. This person may have these constant fantasies of unlimited success and power. They may feel like they can only be understood by those who are just as special and as unique as they are. Uh, They may require constant admiration. 
They may have an unrealistic sense of entitlement, expecting others to cater to their needs or their wishes. Uh, they may exploit others to get what they want. Um, goes into this lack of empathy for others. Uh, they may focus on envy, like trying to be the target of other people's envy or just already believing that everybody else is already envious of them. They also may display just a constant arrogant attitude uh, or just arrogant behaviors. So with narcissism, especially like we're getting into higher levels of narcissism, there is this kind of belief like, wow, that person really thinks highly of themselves. They, may, they must love themselves. They think that highly of themselves, right? There's this kind of idea that that's what it, that's what they maybe believe, right? Because they're kind of walking around the world that way. But narcissism is really rooted in insecurity. And if you have a chance, I would also go back and listen to my podcast where I talk about attachment and attachment theory and how it impacts our relationships in the future. Because narcissism is supposedly rooted in insecure attachment in infancy and childhood. So attachment is that attachment to our early caregivers or family, parents uh, early on. And so Narcissism is really rooted in that insecure uh, attachment that that maybe was disrupted early on. So especially with NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, um, this person may experience um, a disrupted attachment in their early care, you know, early life with their caregivers that actually impeded on their healthy emotional development. So. They may, you know, just were a child that was not able to establish a secure sense of identity. They didn't have this, you know, didn't form this resilient self-esteem or even develop, you know, these empathic connections with other people. And now because of that lack of identity and insecurity, they mount this defense, this major ego protection defense that you know, may come across as, um, you know, self-focused, delusional at times, uh, demanding, even cruel. Um, but those defenses are just a protection, a huge ego protection against feeling vulnerable, disconnected, uh, you know, insecure within themselves. And so they compensate with this grandiosity, this self-aggrandizing kind of behavior. So that's really that's really what's at the root of a lot of narcissistic behaviors and traits. Kind of again, deep deeper insecurities are really behind that. And just kind of like the ego protections I explained at the beginning, this is like a really strong ego protection. Uh, so so much so that it's just trying to protect you from feeling vulnerable. So. When we have higher levels of narcissism, may not even have to be, you know, narcissistic personality disorder, but someone who maybe have really high levels of narcissistic traits that you see. Um, it is said that like these narcissistic features can actually come from childhood environments where the family may have either been neglectful or abusive, like not caring, not having enough attention as a child. But it can also come from a family environment where there was too much attention and caring, almost over pampering. Uh, and so what happens is that, you know, let's say first in this, you know, neglectful, abusive kind of home environment, the parent may have, you know, had this unrealistic image of their child, one that they devalued in ways, right? If they neglect them, if they abuse them, not caring enough for them there's almost this child has been kind of devalued and not really seen for who they are. And likewise in the, you know, a home that maybe over pampered, even maybe cared too much that there was this actually idealized version of them that maybe their parents or their caregivers saw that they 
didn't really see their child's true identity. They saw an idealized version of it, an unrealistic one. And so what happens is that either environments kind of lead to this path of a child having no identity, not having a true identity, you feeling like the victim. And, and that is really where that kind of like lack of self-identity comes from, this lack of, um, you know, healthy self-esteem that gets built. And so a narcissist, a really heavily narcissist or getting into NPD, like their driving motivation in life is to shield them from the threatening emotions that trigger their deep-seated um, sense of inferiority. So all of these things, all these, you know, uh, behaviors I explained, you know, uh, they all are rooted in just trying to shield them and protect them from ever having to feel those threatening emotions that they may have had when they were growing up. So I'm going to now kind of like go through some of the narcissistic traits again, but in a way that kind of decodes it from this place of now understanding that it's an inferiority complex and they actually feel really insecure. So the over-reliance on others for self-definition and self-esteem. So we talked about these, you know, someone who's a narcissist may have this really deep need to have constant admiration. And so, you know, a true narcissist can really kind of hide their real face, like their real insecurities from the world. And they can be really skilled communicators and try to communicate this confidence and they can attract and influence others. So a narcissist will mask their vulnerability from others, even from themselves, uh, and really be reliant on other people uh, to kind of define their sense of self. So it's really, you know, what they fail to develop in childhood. So it's like this internal insecurity gets reflected out in the need to get external validation. So they externally crave validation, crave admiration to fill the internal insecurity of the self-esteem that was just never properly developed in childhood. So some ways that this looks, so some terms you'll hear is like a narcissist supply. And the supply is, again, that compulsion need for this narcissist to fill this kind of emptiness with attention and admiration. So they may jump from people to people and that's their narcissistic supply. That's how they get the, you know, that's how they fill their sense of self, their their sense of self-esteem and gets built up from this supply that they've built up from maybe other people or things. It also happens in projection. So we all project sometimes from time to time, but a narcissist will do so almost like compulsively with absolute no awareness. So a narcissist may just beam their thoughts and feelings onto other people uh, so they don't really have to, you know, deal with maybe what the painful stuff underneath is or even just, again, lacking that ability to step outside of themselves uh, to see that not everybody maybe thinks the same way that they do. And then grandiose and condescending, that is another trait right, of these narcissists. And again, it's this child coping mechanism that this persona, this grandiose persona that they they work really hard to uphold. And it's this insecure need to try to be superior over others. That's how they think that they are better or good, right? It's like this deep-seated need to almost <clears throat> compensate for the fact that they don't feel good. They don't feel confident. They don't feel these things. So, excuse me. Um, they, they may even come off like arrogant and competitive and rude at times because maybe their superiority like feeling gets crossed if somebody wins at something. So, and it's because that, that, that is really like all they have to, 
cling on to for this self-esteem. So they can be prone to bragging, name dropping, um, maybe talking about these high status people or places that they go. All of these things are just a way to try to elevate themselves um, and almost trying to kind of belittle the people around them in this weird way. Sorry, I shouldn't say weird. Um, in this way of them trying to feel superior to make up for the fact that they don't. They don't feel uh, this normal level of healthy self-esteem. This can also look like, again, this exaggerated entitlement that they may have. Uh, there's this, again, this deep inferiority. And so they try to make up for the fact and try to act like they need special treatment, uh, even get, uh, you know, upset or lash out when they feel like they're not treated that way um, because it may trigger that deep-seated feeling that they, you know, they, they don't feel like they get those things or no one puts them first or this this feeling that they're small or it may just trigger any of these deep-rooted uh, things when they're not treated at this high level that they think that they deserve. Uh, so it just kind of triggers again into that kind of childhood space of feeling, you know, like what about what about me? What about me? And how how dare you not give me these needs because you know I'm I am this and I am that. But right, like somebody who is really confident, secure with themselves, like a lack of getting those things wouldn't change their wouldn't change their self-esteem. But this is so reliant on their self-esteem that it could be it could break if they were deprived of that entitlement that they think they're in, entitled to. Um and then lack of empathy. So this is one of the most, you know, defining characteristics of narcissistic personality disorder is this lack of empathy, uh, lack of empathy for people's feelings or needs or other people's perspectives. So uh, they, narcissists may actually even kind of give a good appearance of empathy. They actually may even go to great lengths to kind of cultivate a caring persona, someone who does a lot of good things. They may like do a lot of, they may do a lot of things to seem like they're very empathetic or helpful or all these things. But when it really comes down to having to show the empathy, they may come up short uh, or lack it entirely, depending on how, how high we are on this spectrum of narcissism. So again, like the social skills, this may show up in social skills very uh, in nuanced ways where, you know, a narcissist may feel compelled to dominate the entire conversation. They may even do so by interrupting. Um, this may be because they're easily bored and they kind of miss the nuances in conversations uh, where not, not all conversations are one-sided and you have to take time to listen to the other person's side and kind of miss this nuance for empathy and kind of listening to other people. The lack of empathy can also show up in what we'd call narcissistic rage. So, you know, we we all have these times where we may get angry uh, or, you know, lash out when we don't mean to, right? I mean, that, that happens. But narcissistic rage kind of takes that to like a really, really far spectrum. So it's it's when the narcissist feels like, you know, again, like there this deep inferior wound, this deep insecurity is, you know, shattered or, uh, you know, being taken away, they may respond in an uh, outright rage that can also be quite scary and can even escalate towards violence. And so what happens is that getting into an argument with a narcissist, what may happen is they may lash out at you. They may take the first strike, lash out. But before, you know, anything, they end up may retreating so that they don't actually have to deal with the consequences of their rage, not deal with the consequences of their anger, right? Because I'm sure, you know, people have had it before when you get angry and you say something you don't mean, right? There's this kind of level of, oh, maybe embarrassment or shame about how it was handled, right? Maybe that would lead to an apology and kind of you know, right? That's kind of how sometimes things would go. But for a narcissist, after they have fueled, you know, like this rage on somebody, 
to have to self-reflect and, and maybe feel those feelings of shame and embarrassment will trigger them really deep into that deep attachment wound of feeling insecure and inferior and feeling those feelings literally like threatens them, right? Like as we said, like the whole point of narcissism is to protect them from feeling those feelings. So if that happens, they're not going to want to feel that embarrassment or shame that will lead them to, you know, care for the other person and maybe take accountability for how they, you know, raged on. So instead they may just strike and retreat. So they don't actually have to confront, you know, the consequences of that behavior. This could also look in a passive aggressive kind of way where the narcissist may actually display more of these kind of self-pitying performances to try to induce guilt or blame to the other party. So sometimes that can look like outright guilt tripping or sulking around in a silent treatment because their ego can't surmount uh, their actions and actually, you know, take accountability and get vulnerable with the other person, maybe apologize or things like that. So instead, they kind of revert into this way to kind of feel like the victim in a way. And then the, the last one I'll go over is exploitive of others, right? So if we're getting like really high into the spectrum of narcissism closer to NPD, we're looking at someone who maybe lacks so much empathy that they're actually exploitive of other people. So like a true, true, true narcissist isn't, isn't operating without like, is, sorry, is operating without like a moral compass. So they're exploitive to the point uh, where they're not really thinking of anybody else in mind. Uh, they may bolster themselves up and rationalize their own abusive behavior um, just so they don't have to, you know, sit with the fact that maybe it was abusive behavior. Um, especially in narcissistic parenting, uh, a parent may, you know, prioritize their needs even um, over their children and maybe even exploit their children to fulfill those needs. So uh, when we get into that, it can be, you know, really harmful to other people. Um, one term I know gets thrown out a lot that people are talking about now is gaslighting. Uh, which is a form of psychological abuse that involves undermining a person's mental state by leading them to question their perception of reality. So gaslighting is literally making the other person doubt reality, like what their experiences are, how they felt from the narcissist's actions, and gaslighting is making them doubt their own sense of reality which ends up helping the narcissist, you know, uh, protect themselves from taking accountability. So the narcissist, you know, uses this kind of denial or dismissal or like distorts reality, even straight out maybe lies to their victim uh, just to protect themselves. Again, just to protect so they don't have to go into that place of I made a mistake. Um, I need to take accountability. I should apologize they would go to the extreme of actually exploiting that person and making them question their own reality just so they could get out of that situation. Uh, and that term, actually, gaslight, comes from uh, the 1944 Hollywood film Gaslight, which is a classic depiction of that kind of brainwashing. So these are some of, you know, these are the narcissistic traits that will most be commonly seen and that is where those, you know, seemingly grandiose, seemingly this person really maybe loves themselves and talks about themselves a lot. They run this conversation, all these kinds of narcissistic traits, like where they're really stemming from. There's, there's a deeper insecurity in there. And these things serve as a huge ego protection against having to feel those deeper insecurities about themselves, about how they connect to other people, which may be rooted in this early disruption with their early caregivers where they didn't get a chance to really emotionally develop their own self-esteem, how maybe they relate to others, uh, having a resilience self-esteem when it comes to making mistakes and 
those feelings of feeling vulnerable trigger up this space of insecurity. And so narcissism serves as that purpose to really shield people from having to feel those threatening emotions that they once felt when they were young. And it, it, it comes out looking like all of these ways. So now that we've gone over and decoded some of the narcissistic traits, now that we know that this narcissism really protects the ego uh, and it protects a huge ego wound that the person may have had early on, and that all of these things that I described are really just protective mechanisms for them to protect that that deep insecurity. And so I want to go over the four main fears that a narcissist has and what their mask, what their narcissistic mask is covering. So I know we've we've said, right, it's this insecurity. Okay. But let's take that like one step further and like break it down into these four different uh, roots of the fears. Why the narcissist can't let their mask down. So the first one is uh, afraid of being ordinary. Narcissists may have built their self-worth in the idea that they are special or they're important, gifted, uh, maybe more deserving than others. So children who uh, become narcissistic may have internalized this belief that acceptance and love are conditional. Be you know, it's a it's something that's not guaranteed. It's not unconditional, right? So it's you don't have unconditional love and acceptance. So the children who may grow up to have narcissistic tendencies may have learned that they had to adhere to certain values, needs, or demands of their parents or caregivers um, in order to get that acceptance and love. So there could be this kind of hierarchy within their family that makes them feel like, you know, they need to be special uh, or or do all these grandiose things to be deserving of love and acceptance. So anything less than being special in maybe that, you know, family structure, if this is, you know, the true fear that stems for somebody, that, that anything less than being special would mean failure and would reason humiliation, rejection, abandonment. And maybe that's what they got. Maybe their disrupted attachment early on was when they didn't meet these uh, needs or expectations or demands of their loved ones, their caregivers, that maybe they were humiliated or maybe they were rejected or abandoned by their caregiver. And they learned that they had to, you know, be, be something special, be something more deserving of what they are and and that's how they'll get acceptance and love. So one of these fears is is that fear of you know I have to have this narcissist well of course not consciously maybe but you know they have this narcissistic mask to protect from the fact that being ordinary uh, would have to make them sit with that they're not special which would have to make them sit with the feeling of you know why 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 don't why don't I feel enough on my own? Why do I have to be special to feel deserving of love and acceptance? So that is one that is one deep fear. The second one is the narcissistic mask is covering the fear of being seen or exposed. So emotionally healthy people have a strong sense of self-awareness, you know, being seen for who they truly are. They may practice, you know, self-reflection and value intimacy with people in their lives. But for a narcissist, there is that deep fear of being exposed. And as a result, 
you know, they may want to avoid that self-reflection and they may view intimacy as a threat because it may force them to self-reflect. So kind of like we talked about with that narcissistic rage and uh, not wanting to kind of take accountability for that rage, they may fear intimacy in that sense because they have to actually acknowledge and start to self-reflect. And by doing that, that feels very exposing and it, 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 it triggers this kind of deep, deep feeling that they don't want to look at. So in, in some kind of sense, narcissists really high on the spectrum of narcissism can almost be a stranger to themselves in a lot of ways because they may actually deny their vulnerabilities by such an extent that they may actually be asserting some kind of delusion of superiority. So they they lie to themselves just as well as they lie to other people about their vulnerabilities. And so you know, right? They've kind of convinced themselves of this inflated self-esteem, but but really, right? They're they're dependent on other people's opinions for this kind of measuring of their self-worth, and so having to actually, you know, sit with their vulnerabilities, their vulnerabilities that they may even hide from themselves is like this deep fear of being being exposed, being exposed to something that they may not even know is there themselves. So all of this masking of narcissism is this huge mask to protect from having to touch what may be even unseen for themselves. Because they recognize that as this doesn't feel good, this doesn't feel safe, this is, you know, and they may not be aware, but it may be bringing them back to that that deep wound early on. And so they immediately just, nope, I I don't want to reflect on that. I don't want to reflect on that. And they repel that to, you know, a high extent, even to themselves. So that mask is there to protect them from that fear of being seen or exposed. The next one is the narcissistic mask hiding their fear of being embarrassed or humiliated. So, you know, again, kind of being sensitive and kind of like grandiose, they may have, um, you know, they may feel threatened by feeling small. Uh, Even like, you know, if someone with healthy self-esteem or healthy, you know, self-awareness can, you know, brush off a, a meaningless comment from a stranger or you know, something that maybe makes them feel slighted in some way, but some people can, you know, kind of brush that off and not let that, you know, tear down their whole sense of being. But uh, feeling embarrassed or humiliated, you know, is painful for anybody. But narcissists will, you know, take it to an, a, you know, off the chart level because of Uh, how they've compensated so much feeling superior that when that gets taken down, um, they get really upset and kind of reactive to being embarrassed or humiliated because it takes it to a different level for them because they, they don't feel secure in themselves. So those things really take it to a deep, they take it really deeply. So to avoid those feelings, uh, narcissists may preemptively start humiliating people around them to gain the upper hand. So again, it, it, it just triggers the deep, the deep painful ego wound that they had early on. And they would do anything to protect from having to feel small or embarrassed or humiliated humiliated again, because for them, it may have really, you know, it takes that meaning of genuinely who they are, because they may not really know who they are, because they haven't developed that kind of self-identity and strong sense of self. So they carry on this narcissism as a mask to protect from being embarrassed and humiliated. And then the last one is being rejected. So this narcissistic mask protects from being rejected. So rejection in any form is 
one of the worst fears for a narcissist. Again, rejection kind of triggers what they work all the time to hide from others and from themselves. They're trying to hide the fact that they feel inferior and maybe even unlovable. And so when they're rejected, that triggers the deepest core attachment wound probably that there is. So any kind of rejection, even if that's personal, social, professional, a narcissist would hear that rejection and it would be intensely like destabilizing for them. Like it would be, it's, it triggers the most default, painful ego wound and may shatter them because Right, if we think that this insecurity was built in the, in the family or with caregivers, and that early rejection and of their own sense of self so early on, and they've masked so hard through the whole, you know, all the superiority and all these grandiosities that they do, they end up getting rejected. It just triggers up that wound, uh, everything that they've been trying to hide, and it may just confirm that deep that deep belief, you know, maybe that they built because of what they learned from, you know, that early upbringing and that traumatic event. So, um, you know, emotionally healthy people will try to like pick themselves back up again, right? When we feel rejected, rejection does hurt. Um, but narcissism will kind of, uh, take it to a place of like, they may even try to, you know, contort reality and do the gaslighting, try to regain that sense of control. Um, they may do other means to try to protect their ego rather than, you know, giving themselves that self-love and saying like, oh, it's okay. You know, I can pick myself back, back up after this. They may result to some of the other ego protections that they do that I've already described. So, I, I'm so glad I'm doing a part two on this episode because there's so much to say about this topic. So thank you for listening to part one. And we've covered a lot of the narcissism spectrum, some of the traits of narcissism and how it's really rooted in a deeper attachment wound, most likely with early caregivers, where this self-identity and self-esteem or even relating to other people, this development was kind of disturbed early on. And they have amounted all these intense protective ego defense mechanisms to protect themselves from these deeper wounds of, you know, uh, being ordinary, being seen and exposed, being embarrassed and humiliated, being rejected. All of these deep fears trigger that deeper early wound that first wounded their ego. So in part two, I'm going to expand more on that early ego wound that happens within a family, uh, maybe with a caregiver, and kind of talk about how that narcissism gets passed on and kind of taken on through narcissistic parenting and how it impacts children. So Stay tuned for that episode to hear the second half of this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lightcast with Stephanie Gast. New episodes are out monthly. You can also visit me at my website, www.stephaniegtherapy.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Stephanie G Therapy. Take care.